Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 168. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avinu, Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, we come to you tonight expecting to be well-fed from your word. We know that your, um, your uh, words are reliable. They are trustable. They are a sure promise. They are the anchor to our soul. We also believe by faith that your Holy Spirit is going to open the words up to us so that we can um, receive them by the Spirit so that they can activate uh, their truths and imp- imprint them upon our hearts so that we can walk them out and be pleasing to you. Um, thank you, Lord, that these times are made available for us week after week so that we can meet with you and meet with one another. Um, even if Many of us are out sick right now. We pray, Lord, for healing, for wholeness, for strength, uh, for speedy recoveries. Um, we pray that you'll be with people who are wanting to be here tonight but weren't able to make it for those reasons. So just bless us where we're at. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Welcome to the Live Internet Studies. This is Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my, let's jump right into the study. If I do the timing right, this will be the final Romans 14 Unplugged study. Um, I've uh, pushed all of... All of the, um, I mean, I've, I've handled all of the studies, I've all of the material, I've gotten through all of that, all the notes, and now I'm just going to do basically an overview. So, in true fashion to the name of the study, Unplugged, I originally envisioned that this study would just go kind of like I would read a verse and then I'd kind of speak on the verse out of my head or out of my heart out of my um, my knowledge that I've uh, uh, kind of uh, built up over the years without having these long, lengthy, written-out um, notes to draw from. But um, it turned out, it turned into be into a written commentary that's a little over 50 pages long and so it is that's what it is right now so just follow along with me on the screen i'll read each verse uh of the romans 14 i'm going to read the english the esv and i'm going to read the greek so that we'll actually in the end in this um overview we'll end up reading the entire chapter in both english and in greek and then I'll stop and just comment on each verse. I'll, I'll use my notes here, but I'm not going to go through the notes line by line. So follow along with me. This is Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my, updated December 18th, 2021. The first thing you encounter is the table of contents with 18 different points as I look at them. Let me read all 18 of those points for us, even though we're not going to go line by line. But point number one, introduction, background, and historical audience. Point number two, conclusions. Point number three, scope and style of this study. Point number four, covers, starts jumping into the um, passages. Uh, point number four, 14, one, who are the weak in faith. Point number five, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 verses Romans 14. Point number six, who are the weak in faith? Christian perspectives. Point number seven, who are the weak in faith? Messianic perspectives. Point number eight, conclusions to those um, two topics. Point number nine, starting in Romans uh, 14, 2 through 4, what is the contrast between anything and vegetables? Point number 10 covers uh, chapter 14, verses 5 through 9. Are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? Point number 11, conclusions to those uh, thoughts there. 
Starting in point number 12, we just looked at verses 10 through 13 of chapter 14. Who is the brother in this letter? Point number 13 is uh, chapter 14, verses 14 through 18. What exactly does nothing is unclean in itself imply? Point number 14 was the conclusions. Point 15 covered verse 19 of chapter 14 of this letter. How can we make for peace and for mutual upbuilding? Point number 16 was the conclusions to that section. Point number 17 covered verses 20 and 21. What does everything is indeed clean mean? And then the last point, point 18, covered the last two verses of Romans chapter 14. And the question asked, how do we keep the faith we have between ourselves and God? All right, so let's go down through the study real quick. Point number one, introduction, background, and historical audience. And um, again, I'm not going to read the notes. I'm kind of going to scroll down through the notes and tell you some of what we talked about. In the introduction, we just um, talked about the idea that um, Paul is writing to a group of Jews and Gentiles in the first century, and it was important for us to um, be informed that the synagogue communities of Paul's day included Gentiles seeking um, a relationship with the God of Israel, there was a heavy emphasis in the first century on the um, the location or the focal point of the Jewish members of the community as being the foundational aspects of the community. And the Gentiles, this is prior to Acts chapter 2, the Gentiles would have been seen as outsiders or visitors in some cases, there were they were supporters, right? If you had enough money and were willing to help support the synagogue, but all, what was germane to our study here in Romans was that by the time we had progressed to Paul's writings, right? Acts chapter two had already taken place. The Holy Spirit had been poured out. Yeshua had come and and gone, and the Spirit had uh, been poured out and was bringing Gentiles into not just the synagogue communities, but the Holy Spirit was bringing people into the body of Messiah. So the emphasis started shifting a bit by, by the time we get to Paul's day to not so much the focus being on national Israel, but the focus being more on um, the presence of Gentiles in the in the in the community of faith. And this plays into Paul's letters because he realizes that this was actually part of God's plan from day one. Israel had been blinded to this, and so we learned this in the introduction part of this particular study. We don't have to go through it again, but it's important as you approach the book of Romans, in my opinion, to realize that the Jewish people had uh, experienced not just this kind of dis disruption of social life on a large scale, with the heavy influx of Gentiles into their communities of faith, but also the Jews were the Jewish communities were constantly going through um, their uh, scuffles with Rome, their uh, challenges with living within a Roman community, a Roman-controlled uh, community, even though they had a certain amount of autonomy there in the land of Israel. And so, to that end, we talked about the expulsions that were uh, taking place around this time period. Roman emperors would kind of get fed up with the feisty Jewish populations in Rome or in, in the land of Israel, and they would expel Jews 
from their um, borders from time to time. So this is this is not the first time this happened, but it impacted Paul's letter in such a way that by the time Paul writes to Roman, writes to the Roman church there in in the, that uh, time period in the first century, say mid fifties of his day, um, something like 55, 56, 57, that's where most authors place, place the writing, then the Jewish community in Rome had been expelled by Emperor Claudius and then in a short time had been brought allowed to be brought back into the land of Rome uh, at Emperor Claudius's death. We talked about in my study how this perhaps impacted the not only the Jewish community and, and the numbers, the sheer numbers, but it impacted the um, uh, the percentage of who would have been in leadership in the um, Messianic communities. A power shift had taken place. We had predominantly Jewish leaders perhaps prior to the expulsion and now with the um the decimation of the jewish community because a lot of the jewish people had to leave maybe not all but a, maybe a good number um then um suddenly leadership was kind of thrust into the hands of gentile christianity rather than jewish um messianic jewish leadership so that's going to change the dynamic of of the social program it's going to change the, the way the perception of god's uh, words and God's responsibilities are um, kind of um, hammered out in the communities. And so that was important. Uh, we went, went through that. Uh, it was a lengthy section. As you can see, I'm scrolling up and down through uh, the notes. And so go back and read them on your own. Uh, if you're a big historian buff, that'll really be good information for you. It might be kind of dry reading for those of you who are just all theology. But uh, I thought it was important uh, enough for us to uh, hit all those uh, information, all that information. All right, then we had some conclusions um, that I drew, and in my opinion, um, there isn't a very um, uh, reliable way of coming to the conclusion that um, all of the Jewish people were expelled. Uh, even though Luke talks about it in the Book of Acts about the expulsion and, and all the Jews or, or Jews were were told to leave, um, his, history just doesn't seem to line up with um, common sense and fact. I say history, meaning what has been left for us by the historians, uh, the, the, the the scant amount of information that we have. So in the end, um, it's entirely possible that the uh, expulsion may have kind of been over uh, has kind of been overstated overplayed in in our minds as modern Christians um, in other words it's likely that Paul still considered and this is the point I wanted you to walk away with it's likely that Paul still considered the Gentile Christian communities to be um, what do we say um, actively involved with their Jewish communal counterparts at the synagogue level. Um, Paul didn't teach that the Gentile community should make a hard, fast break from the Jewish communities is the point I'm trying to make. And in my notes, I've tried to uh, present that perspective. I could be wrong. I'm not a historian by um, profession, but I am interested wherever history intersects with biblical theology and has me... Uh, in a place where I can better attain uh, a better understanding of what the Bible's trying to teach me. Why would it be important for me today if if Jews and Gentiles were still connected to one another? Because of the, soci the socio-religious dynamic of uh, the way Israel interacted with the commandments of God and the scriptures of, that were handed down to Israel, and the way Gentile Christianity was somewhat um, new to this 
perspective of the scriptures of Israel and the social dynamics and challenges that would have been um, uh, uh, brought up as a result of that, particularly in a chapter where Paul's going to start dealing with matters of what we call church policy or halacha. How do we deal with food that's sold in common marketplaces where pagan influence is a is a very strong factor? Um, food offered up to idols on day one, and then on day two, it's found in the marketplace. What do religious Jews do about that food? What do um, religious Gentiles do about it? How do we come together without fighting and tearing one another down when we have such strong differences of food and and uh, idolatry related issues, things like that. So that's why it impacted our study in Romans 14, which in my opinion has a lot to do with food and fasting and feast days, thus the name of my study, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. In section three, we introduced the scope and style of the study, and we asked these questions of the text. Um, I simply created some bullet points using the verses, and I broke them down. This is my own breakdown, and asked these questions of the text. I'm not going to read them again. We already basically went through that, but you can see that that's where we begin to get into a kind of a, a very uh, basic outline of the text and the and the uh, notes. And now, as we get to section four, I start looking at each verse. So let me just start reading this and give you. This is kind of kind of going to be the um the meat of uh, the study tonight. If we go a little bit longer than the 30 minutes, I'm fine with that. Uh, even though I've only allotted 30 minutes to the study uh, for part one, sometimes we go over it. it might happen like that tonight. I do want to complete this tonight. I don't want to carry this over into next week, so we'll see what happens. Romans 14.1, ESV. Um, Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, let me highlight it like that. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The Greek over on the right side of the page says, Ton de est ostenunta te piste pras lambaneste me eis diacrises dialogis moon. And in this particular verse, we instantly see. Uh, sorry, I keep scrolling up and down there. In this verse, we instantly see Paul letting us know that there are at least two groups that he's addressing. It says the one who's weak in faith, which means even though he doesn't name them, by implication, we know that it must be the strong in faith. In chapter 15, the first few verses, he does name the, the strong in faith, and he includes himself among that bunch. He says, we who are strong. So, the first question that I entertained in my notes was, um, "Who are the weak in faith?" We talked in the in the uh, we talked about how the Greek word for weak, the asteneo, means to be weak or feeble, feeble to be ill or without strength or to languish. And since he says weak in faith, then there instantly uh, arises at least two um, ways to read this particular verse. One of those ways is to, um, sorry, let me go back up to the verse there. One of these ways is to um, interpret the weak in faith as those who are Christian, and yet they, they're counted as weak because they are still holding on to some uh, maybe um, preferences that they uh had before they were Christian. So Christian commentaries today will look at the social setting of Paul's day and, and begin to define the fact that Jewish people came to their belief in Jesus with a 
um, belief that they should be keeping the Torah. And yet Gentiles wouldn't have had that experience of keeping Torah when they came to their faith in Jesus. Thus, right away, we have two different kind of life experiences that are brought to the table with a the potential to have disagreement right out of the bat, right out of the gate. Um, you guys who are Jewish think you should be keeping Torah. We who are Gentiles don't think that that's something we should be keeping. And thus, from the modern Christian standpoint today, weak in faith is a description of someone who's a Christian, whether he's Jewish or not Jewish, but primarily Jewish. Weak in faith describes their, their continued dependency upon the law of Moses or continued preference for keeping Sabbath, kosher, dietary issues, religious festivals, things like that. And thus, weakness is directly attached to Torah keeping in the perspective of modern Gentile Christian authorship. So that's one of the primary ways. I'll put a little graphic on the screen where you can see this bullet point breakdown in post-production. However, there's enough information provided for us throughout the rest of the scriptures to include Paul's writings, right, the, the Tanakh, coupled with Paul's writings, for us to come to some sensible conclusion that this is a very weak way to describe weak in faith, weak pun intended there, a weak way to describe Jewish Christianity. Jewish Christians, to be sure, Messianic Jews, if you want to call them that, they don't consider their Torah keeping as weakness, right? Um, the entire scope of the Tanakh of Israel's history would strongly disagree with that perspective that keeping Torah or covenant keeping is a, uh, a lifestyle that Paul should label as weak, right? If anything, it would be the opposite. It would be strong. And so um, the other perspective that I actually take is that weak in faith is a description of, indeed, their faith. But it's not faith in God that's being described this week. Rather, it's a, um, a weakness in um, confessing Jesus as the Lord yet. In other words, given the very real dynamic that there are Gentiles I'm sorry, Jewish people in the synagogue who are ex who are uh, hearing about this Messiah as Jesus, right? The very real prospect that Jesus fits the description of the Messiah that they've been reading about in their Tanakh. They're coming to this um, decision process. Is he really the one that we've been waiting for, that we've been reading about? Um, is he the one in Isaiah 53? You know, is he the suffering servant? Is he the one that's, that God promised they would send from our brothers, you know, and that we read about way back in the Torah? Is he the suffering servant? Is he the is he the, the, the one that's typified by the, the sacrifices? Is he the one that, that died on the cross? Is that the one that we've been waiting for, right? The prophet, uh, that the prophets themselves, you know, the, the, the prophet with a capital P. So this description of um, kind of indecision mode process for a Jew fits the bill of weak in faith as well. Um, perhaps you never heard that, and perhaps that's a little new to you. So go back and read my notes, and um, that, that's an interesting um, prospect to consider. Um, I'm not going to be terribly disappointed if you don't take that perspective because it's a minority opinion, and um, it takes a lot of uh, 
what we call paradigmatic shift, shifting around of thought processes to come to that conclusion. So most Christians are simply going to reject that outright and say, what? That doesn't make any sense. They're going to go with the idea that weakness has to do with Torah. And so it's unfortunate for Messianic Jews that that's the, the, the popular opinion for today, because for people such as myself who are a Messianic Jew, who are Messianic Jews, Christians who keep Torah to the best of our ability, it's unfortunate that our Gentile Christian counterparts look at us and say, well, I'm happy that you believe in Jesus, but it's a shame that you're still a weak Christian, weak that you're still keeping Torah, that you're still relying on that old um, way of life. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at. All right, so let's jump into the next verse. And I won't spend too much time going on, or at least the next section in my um, uh, uh, the, the notes talked about uh, the comparison of this chapter with 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. And there's some overlap, obviously, because if you go back and read 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, those two chapters in Paul, he talks about um, food offered to idolatry, food offered up to idols, and what do we as Christians do about that social setting? What do we do about the food that's found in the marketplaces? We know it was offered up to idol privately, privately, uh, previously um, or prior it was offered up to uh, idols. Is it safe to eat? And Paul makes some conclusions in Corinthians that we can carry over into Romans. Uh, but there's also some um, differences between the two chapters. I'm not going to focus on all of that right now in this overview, but go back and read that on your own. There's a lot of mileage, uh, a lot of um, uh, information that's provided by commentaries that feels that there's a, uh, um, a strong uh, similarity between what Paul wrote to the communities in Corinth and what Paul wrote to the communities in Rome. In uh, section six, we asked the question, who are the weak in faith? And I outlined some Christian perspectives. That's kind of what I just went through at a moment, a uh, moment ago. So I can scroll down through this really quickly. Essentially, the Christian perspective is that the weak in faith are those Jewish Christians in the communities that were still teaching that you should believe in Jesus, but that you should also keep the Torah of Moses. Those are the weak in faith. In section seven, or point number seven, who are the weak in faith? Messianic perspectives. I showed how that this is really not the best way for Messianic Jews to describe their own experience walk of faith. Can you imagine? Messianic Jews walking around saying, hey, guess what? We believe in Jesus. We also believe you should be, keep, be keeping Torah. Um, please call us the weak. <laughs> just, just, it falls apart. And indeed, today's Messianic Jews are really sh this short of being offended by being labeled as weak because we don't see Torah keeping as a sign of weakness. In fact, we see it as a sign of strength. Um, so uh, go back and read my notes there and um, see how that uh, it, it's, it's well worth your study to take a different perspective than just the common garden variety um, popular view that weak in faith has to be talking about um, Gentile, uh, Gentiles are predominantly Jewish people, but anyone who believes in Jesus but also um, uh, keeps the Torah of Moses. So also, and I mentioned this in my notes, if indeed it's that it is the fact that weakness is tied to Torah keeping, then why is it that over and over again the prophets of Israel scolded Israel for breaking covenant with God and enjoined them to come back to covenant faithfulness? Indeed, there are prophecies that foretell that when God would fill Israel with his spirit at a corporate level, that one of the byproducts of that infilling, one of the the um um 
uh, first reactions to being filled with the Spirit of God is that it would cause the people to turn into covenant faithfulness, to become more faithful to God's words, to actually become obedient to the Torah of Moses and walk in it, walk it out so that you could actually fulfill it and do it. Thus, in the, in the, in the minds of the prophets, spirit infilling equals Torah obedience. And so, isn't this odd that Paul would come along as a Christian and describe Torah keeping as a sign of weakness? See how there's a, a strong disconnect between the perspective that Torah keeping equals weakness when compared to what the entire bulk of not only what Moses was teaching, but what the prophets later built on uh, when it comes to um, describing Israel being faithful to the covenants of God. So that's that's a lot that you should chew on and think on and pray about when you're studying uh, topics such as the ones that we're engaged in right now. So let's keep going through my uh, notes, through this uh, overview. Like I said, I, I definitely want to make it through this, but I don't, want, I don't want to feel like I'm rushing you, right? I'm like a opening up a fire hydrant and asking you to get a drink and not, you know, the strong gushing water that's coming out. So you can see there's a lot of notes here, so I'm scrolling down through those. Because I'm passionate about the perspective that um, that this idea that Torah keeping is a sign of weakness is really just wrong-headed. It's it's really the uh, a very um, a, a, oh, how do we want to describe it? It's it's really a, not the perspective I think Paul was wanting to get at, and I I think we've lost the context of what Paul's trying to say because of two thousand years of being removed in Gentile Christianity from our roots, our Hebraic roots, and so we've just kind of um, got the wrong perspective now. So let me scroll down through all those notes and get into the, the kind of the verse by verse section. One once more. Apologize for having to scroll through all this. Alrighty, here we go. In section nine, we start to get into the verse by verse part once again. Um, the question is asked: What's the contrast between anything and vegetables? And so, it right away as we read the verse, verse two: One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Uh, let me highlight the verses. The Greek says, "Hasmen pistui phagen panta ha de asthenon lakana sta." Verse 3, Paul says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. In the uh, Greek, uh, verse 3, Ha estion ton me estionta me exutaneto, ha de me estion ton estionta me crineto, ha theos gar auton praselabato. And then in verse 4, Paul asks some more questions. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be able to upheld, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Uh, verse four, the Greek says, "Su tis e ha krinon alatrian oikatein to idio kurio steke e pipte statesete statesetai de dunate gar ha krinos." I'm sorry, ha kurios statesai altan. And so, in these in these uh, sets of verses, we have um, judgment going on between one who's eating and one who's not eating, one who's abstaining, and um, typically you're going to read that this is a de 
debate or a, a, a contest between um, Gentile Christians who are not keeping kosher and Gentile uh, Jewish Christians who are keeping kosher and the argumentations that go on between the two. That could be the case. We could equally say that it's possible that this is a difference of opinion or judgmental um, contest going on between people who are eating food that was offered idols and people who are avoiding. Of course, the Jew and Gentile element is there as well. But we could likely uh, also bring in another element that's often overlooked. And that when Paul talks about the person eating and the person abstaining, he could also be talking about fast days versus non-fast days. People abstaining being the fasting, the fasters, and people who are eating be the non-fasters. Of course, this would fit in with the context of this being an issue where the Bible doesn't come down on one side or the other. Fast days are um, voluntary. They're not outlined in the Torah. They're not laid out in black and white by the law of Moses. Thus, we could see how there would be differences of opinion. Versus, if the Torah tells Israel to keep kosher, then when a person comes along and says, no, nah, I don't think I need to keep kosher, well, then it would be easy to, to appeal to Scripture to say, well, why aren't you doing what God told you? Because God tells us to keep kosher. Therefore, it's, um, it's easy to appeal to the authority of Scripture. But... If it's an issue of fast days, well, then we can't make an instant appeal to Scripture. Understand my opinion there, or my uh, perspective there? So it's likely, in my opinion, that Paul's not bringing up a kosher versus non-kosher issue. That would be an interpretation that's probably not warranted by the context. Instead, it's more likely that it's one of those other two perspectives. Paul's either talking about food offered up to idols and that people abstain from that, or he's talking about um, uh, uh, fast days, which themselves are completely voluntary. And so either way, the Torah is going to tell us to avoid idolatry, but the Torah doesn't have any strong words that say you have to avoid um, food that's sold in a common marketplace that may have been offered up to an idol earlier on. Um, that's between you and your conscience and between you and God. Paul's going to tell you, hey, if it's going to tell you this in Corinthians, hey, if it offends your brother to eat that type of meat, then you need to consider your brother before your uh, before yourself. And you need to consider how it would, might wound him, especially if he's kind of someone who doesn't have the same mastery of the subject as you. How is it going to play out in his mind that he knows that you're eating meat offered up to, that was offered up to idols uh, a day prior and you're buying that food. So those are the issues that were brought up by this particular verse. Um, the next set of verses uh, is uh, chapter 14, verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. <laughs> okay, 5 through 9. All right, so let's read the, uh, the verses real quick. Um, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced of his own mind. The Greek on the right side says, Hosmen gar krine himeron gar apar himeron hos de krine pasan himeron hekastos in to idio noi pleor floristo. Verse 6 in the uh, English, ESV. The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Notice the, the, the language that describes fasting. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. The, the, um, the opposing people or the, uh, the differencing, uh, the difference, uh, what we might call the, uh, uh, the, uh, 
Oh, I'm lo- losing a word here, but the 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 um the dichotomy that's being um, described here, um, the opposing uh, descriptions, um, one who observes a day and one who eats, indicates, in my opinion, that the day mentioned in the first part of six is a fast day. So I think I could supply that the one who observes a fast day observes an honor of the Lord, and the one who doesn't fast, i.e., the one who eats, eats an honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains an honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Notice, if this is not about Sabbath, but it's instead about fasting, it makes more sense for Paul to talk about the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. But if this were about Sabbath versus Sunday, notice, the one who observes the Sabbath day observes in honor of the Lord, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Hey, What does Sabbath have to do with eating? See how that it breaks the context if we suddenly turn this into a Sabbath versus Sunday. Indeed, in the latter half of the chapter of the verse, he says, "While the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord, the one who eats is set in contradistinction." That's the word I was looking for earlier. To the one who abstains, which is the the one who abstains is a description of the one who observes the day. In other words, if this is really about Sabbath, why in verse 6, the very first clause, does he just talk about Sabbath and then suddenly start talking about eating and not eating? Sabbath doesn't really have anything to do with eating and non-eating. It's not the primary issue. And indeed, the bulk of the rest of the chapter deals with these food issues, which Sabbath is not tied to. So for the point I'm trying to make is that for Paul to make this a verse about Sabbath— and then the rest of the chapter is all about eating and, um, and not eating and, and things like that, is a really weak argument. It's really um, out of context for Paul to just throw in the Sabbath there. Besides, he doesn't say the Sabbath. The word Sabbath is not mentioned by name. He just simply says, observes the day, right? He could even be talking about a birthday. I mean, he could be talking about any day. It's just unfortunate that modern Christianity has decided to turn this into a Sabbath versus Sunday debate. Um, again, let's use the hermeneutic principle. If scripture gives us clear indication and instruction on one matter, then we don't need to relegate that matter into the realm of personal opinion. And so we can put that test here. Does the scriptures, do the scriptures of Moses, do the scriptures of Israel give us any opinion on the Sabbath day versus other days? The answer is absolutely yes. So therefore, Sabbath is not fall into the realm of personal opinion. Thus, Paul would not and should not relegate the Sabbath into a personal opinion, put to a kind of a, a community vote. Hey, let's take a vote. Who thinks we should be keeping Sabbath on Sunday, Saturday? Who, you know, who wants Sunday? Who wants Saturday? Who wants Friday? Hey, um, you know, that's really not really, that's really not what's going on. But if we're talking about fast days, which were voluntary, where the scriptures don't give us a black or white issue, then yeah, could be personal opinion. And should we fight over those personal opinions? No. Paul says no. All right, so let's keep reading. Um, Let's read the, uh, let's see, what did I read? I read uh, the English of verse 6. Let's read the Greek of verse 6 right here. The Greek, which contains uh, the red marked out uh, variant uh, part that shows up in some Bibles and not in all Bibles, so longer version, shorter version. The Greek says, Ha franon tein himeran kurio frane, and then in brackets, Kai ha me franon tein himeran kurio u frane, end of brackets, continue. Ha estion kurio estie euchariste gar to theo, Kai ha me estion kurio uk estie kai euchariste to theo. Verse uh, 7. 
of the English. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Uh, verse 7 in the Greek. Udes gar himon kauto, ze kai udes kauto apothneske. Verse 8 in English. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Right, put us back into perspective here. Paul's gonna let us know. Hey, get your mind off, get your get get your focus off yourself, and put it back on God. Right, we all belong to God. In the Greek, it says "ente garazomen to kurio zomen ente apathneskomen to kurio apathneskamen ente un zomen ente apathneskomen to kurio esmen." Verse. Nine in the English for this for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living, and then um, the Greek counterpart of verse nine ace ace tutag gar Christos apethanen kai exasen hina kai mekron kai zonton kuriuse. and um, again we already talked about uh, the notes there. Um, you know, is this an, an opinion of uh, Sabbath versus Sunday? Uh, that was primarily what, what the uh, the notes talked about. So I'm just going to scroll past all of those and jump into the next section. The conclusions also draw those same settings, the same uh, um, uh, uh, thought process. Is this Sabbath versus Sunday? It's likely that this is not. Let's move on to the next set of verses 10 through 13. Who is the brother? This is Romans 14, 10 through 13, and this is the overview of this particular chapter. In verse 10, Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The Greek says, Su de ti krines tan adelphon su, e kai su ti exutenes tan adelphon su, pantes gar pras, pras, what does that say? Pras. I'm sorry. Paras de sametha to bromati bromati to theu. And um, let me read verse eleven and twelve and thirteen, and then I'll go back and tell you what. But I uh, the my my opinion of this section was verse eleven. For for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Uh, the Greek says, "Gegraptai gar zoego lege kurias hati emoi kampse." Pan ganu kai pasa glosa exulama exumala. <laughs> this is the big tongue twister. You know, you know, seven syllable word. Examala examala gesetai examala gesetai totheo. I always stumble over that word. It it, it trips me every time. And uh, verse 12, I just laugh at myself. Uh, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Uh, the Greek says, Adaun hekastas hemon peri how to lagon dose totheo. And then verse 13, therefore, right, his semi conclusion, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother, which really, if you think about it, is a kind of a summary of of, of, the, of the entire chapter of what he's really trying to get the Jews and Gentiles to walk away with. Let's not pass judgment on one another any longer. We're all part of the same body of Messiah. We really just need to um, 
focus on not trying to put stumbling blocks in the hindrance of one another because we belong to the same faith community, which is what we're going to talk about here in a second. Uh, the Greek says, Make it un alelus krinomen ala tuta krinata, malanta me tethea tethenai praskama to adelpho. Adelpho a scandalon. Now, in this section, I focused on this idea of the brother. Who is the brother? And what I've ascertained is that Paul has two kind of um, contexts that he could use the word brother in. There's a larger context for brother, this Greek word adelphos, um, that he uses, or adelphon, um, that he could be describing in his letters, which points to the larger faith community of national Israel along with the Gentiles who are being brought into this community effort of describing and outlining the people of God from a larger covenant perspective. This, of course, is a larger picture that I'm painting, kind of the zoom out if you want to use a Google Maps term. This larger umbrella picture that Paul had in his mind would naturally include many more unsaved Jews and Gentiles in that mix because we're talking about a, a larger brush stroke that we're painting uh, when we use that term brother. But it's it it the boundaries are drawn where when it comes to Israel. That's the that's where we um, stop. So Paul's not going to say the entire world is your brother. He's simply going to say, national Israel is the community of faith that God recognizes in the Tanakh that to which the Gentiles are being brought into close proximity to what Paul would describe in Ephesians chapter 2 as the commonwealth of Israel. All right, so that's a larger picture. That's brother. That's, that is brotherhood. However, most often when you read through your Bibles, the New Testament part of your Bible, the word brother or Adelphon or Adelphos, depending on you're looking at singular versus plural, then you're going to find the context is pointing to Christians. This would include Jews, this would include Gentiles. So for Paul, he could have a smaller context where he's focusing on a, a group of people who have professed Jesus as Lord and who are um, meeting together under this common description of Today we would call us Christians or church, but in Paul's day it was still just the community of faith or the brother, the brotherhood, the body of Messiah, uh, things like that. But definitely it would include people who are verbally professing a faith in Messiah. It's still possibly going to include people who are not really Christian, just like today it does. You know, Everybody who says they're a Christian isn't really a Christian. But it at least includes people who are professing faith in Messiah, as opposed to people who are just attending church who are saying, well, I'm not yet convinced that Jesus is Messiah. So that's uh, really the point I was trying to bring up in that particular section. Let's see if we can accelerate this a little bit. Um, the next set of verses is Romans 14. Uh, verses 14 through 18. Uh, let's look at the English, verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Wow, that's a mouthful, right? Um, sounds like he's uh, really skirting the issue between kosher and non-kosher. Or is he? The Greek says, Oida kai pepesmai in kurio yesu, hati udin koinan di hiautu, e me to lagidzamino ti koinan hinai ekeno koinan. Uh, verse 15. I'm just going to read the verses first, then I'll go back and comment. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, 
right, whether it's kosher or not. You're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to keep kosher or not. If you are openly and and outwardly offending your brother, um, then you're in the wrong, right? It doesn't matter how, quote, unquote, um, co- a shober mitzvot or kosher or Torah observant you are. The Greek says, A gardia broma ha adelpha su lupetai ukati kata agapain para pates me to bromatisu ekanon apalue huper hu Christos apethanen. Verse uh, 16 in the English says, do, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The Greek says, me blasphemestho u humon to agathon. And then verse uh, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Get your eating perspective into proper perspective. Get your eating um, halakha or your eating preferences into the proper perspective. Is eating important? Absolutely. You got to eat to live. You got to live to eat. Well, maybe you shouldn't really live to eat, but at least you got to eat to live. But Paul's going to tell you, you know what? It's not the most important thing. The kingdom of God is not all about eating and drinking, right? It's important, but it's not the most important thing. What is more important is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, he describes it this way: I'm sorry, Dikayo Sune, Kai Erene, Kai Kara in Punumati Hagio. And then the final verse, verse uh, 18 in the English, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So um, if you're going to be pleasing to God, if you're going to serve Messiah, if you want to be acceptable to God, you've got to get your priorities straight. Keeping kosher is great, but, um, or, feeling like you can eat anything you want is great, right? I say great in the sense of if it's still within the biblical parameters, meaning um, you can keep a a vegetarian diet. That's what I mean by uh, eat whatever you'd like there. Uh, You don't have to eat meat. But um, the point being is uh, keep your brother's um, conscience and his uh, well-being forefront as well this is a community effort don't just go out there and do whatever you want and say well i'm just going to serve god i don't care what you guys think about the way i live if it wounds you if it offends you then you've got the problem that's the wrong attitude to take um <laughs> understand what i mean there verse 18 the greek hogara in tuto duluon to christo urestas to theokai dakimas tois anthropois so let's move to the next set of verses. We kind of hit the exclamation as I was going. Some conclusions are provided in my notes to uh, show you that that's the perspective I was understanding is that Paul's not really talking about kosher versus non-kosher. He's really talking about, um, uh, again, you have to use the hermeneutic of um, uh, uh if the Bible outlines something for us to do, if it describes a lifestyle, then that's the the authoritative perspective that we need to um, turn to first. But within that perspective, within that scope of describing the lifestyle that we are to keep, we also need to keep in mind that this is a community effort and that wounding the other person, wounding their conscience or outright, outright ostracizing them because of the practices that they follow is not the option that the Bible gives us. It's not um, the uh, lifestyle that God is going to approve of. 
So if we want to follow Christ and be approved in God's sight, we've got to keep our brother in mind. We've got to be in a, a, a mindset of serving the other person and not wounding the other person's conscience. Uh, verse 19 in the English, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual building. Uh, the Greek says, Ara un ta tes eireines di diokomen, kai ta tes oikadames tes eis alelus. Um, Pursuing what makes for peace and mutual building, I say in my notes that Paul could have appealed to human reason here. You guys just need to think it through and work it out, come up with some church policy that um, solves the uh, judgmental attitudes between you. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, um, even though he doesn't outright say what the solution to the problem is, it kind of generically says pursue what makes for peace and a mutual building we have to fill in the context fill in um the the, the the kind of read between the lines and ask ourselves what is paul's definition of peace and mutual building when it comes to the communities of the first century and we can look to other letters and i did this in my notes by turning to the book of ephesians where talks paul talks about that yeshua is our peace he is the one that has broken down the dividing wall that separated jew from gentile and all of these issues that are brought up as a result of the two communities being thrust together under the common um name body of messiah communities of faith, Jews and Gentiles with our differences. Um, the only way for us to settle those differences is, is to look to our Lord and Master, Messiah Yeshua, and to allow His Spirit to wash over us and to work in and through us to resolve the issues, to, to serve the other, to put the other brother put his interest above those of our own that's how we're going to pursue uh, what makes for peace and mutual building not by coming up with clever church programs that outline who can eat what and on what days and saying okay let's have our 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 um uh what do we call it our um agreeing to disagree policies where okay we don't think the jews uh we don't think we need to be keep, keep keeping kosher but the jews think they should be keeping kosher Therefore, we're just going to kind of um, agree to get along, even though we disagree with what they're doing, that type of thing. That's not really what Paul's – he's not going to appeal to that. So we read the Greek there. Uh, let's keep going. Um, we're really taking up all the time in the study to uh, do the Romans. I need to leave some time for the, uh, the uh, uh, other parts of my study here tonight. Um, we'll see what happens. This is getting quite interesting, a lot longer than I thought it was going to take. But let's keep going. And um, there were some conclusions in my notes. We're going to skip past all of that. Uh, we're almost done in the overview. We're in the last four verses. Verse 20 in the English says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Is Paul really saying that no longer are we to regard um, pork as unclean, shrimp as unclean, lobster as unclean? Paul says everything is indeed clean. Is that really what he means? Let's read the Greek for a second. May eneken bromatas katalua to ergan tu theu. Panta men kathara ala kakan to anthropo to dia praskamatas estianti. I think he's not meaning that everything is indeed clean. In, in fact, the word clean there is the um, Greek word uh, kathara, panta men kathara, everything is indeed clean. Everything is indeed innocent. Everything is indeed in a place where it needs to be um, uh, contextually understood whether it is permissible to eat or not. Uh, even 
animals that God describes as clean or unclean are still given those descriptions by God himself. He creates an animal and then he comes along and gives us whether or not it should be clean. But for our sake, we can recognize that um, uh, food now is in a place, as long as it's within the scope of God's definition of a clean animal, then if we bring in the uh, question of idolatrous involvement, then we're dealing with the issue of uh, versus, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, akathartos versus koinos. What do I mean by those two fancy Greek words? Akathartos is a description of a clean or unclean from perhaps God's perspective, the way God views animals and the foods that's derived from them. Akathartos, it's off limits. Those animals should not be slain and eat. They should not be um, served up as food. Akathartos, uh, avoid them at all costs when it comes to eat eating, if at all possible. But if we're talking about food that is allowable within God's permission permission to eat, like say lamb or chicken or beef, and yet it comes into contact with idle practice or it's found in a common market where you're not sure where the origin of the food came from, then we're talking about a koinos issue. Koinos, man's definitions, man's perspective. Um, this is not in um, disagreement with God. This is just in a, um, addition to what God has already said. You can eat or cannot eat it. That's what I mean by everything is indeed innocent. Everything is indeed uh, clean or kathara, panta men kathara in the Greek. That's what I'm, uh, I, uh, those are the conclusions I came to. So Paul says it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul tells us by the context, uh, even if it's kosher food, if it's going to cause your brother to stumble because of the um, questions uh, surrounding origins and things like that, you know, lamb is kosher. But if a lamb was offered up as an idol um, sacrifice and then sold in the common marketplace and then uh, a a Gentile comes along to eat it, and the religious Jew sees him eating that lamb, otherwise permissible by God, but he sees his fellow brother eating that lamb when the Jewish person knows it was offered up in idolatry, isn't it going to wound the Jewish person's conscience? In that situation, if the Gentile has the opportunity to know that it's going to wound his Jewish brother's conscience, then Paul's going to say, it's good not to eat that lamb or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. If you have the opportunity, you know it's going to wound your brother's of conscience because he is tripped up by the idol uh, factor, the idolatry factor. He's not tripped up by the fact that it's lamb. That's permissible by God under, under normal circumstances. But because of the inclusion of the idolatry and where it was sold um, after it was used in idolatrous ceremony, that's where you as the good standing Gentile Christian need to consider your brother's uh, conscience before your own freedom. The Greek says, Kalanto me fagen krea me de pien oidon me de in ho ho ha adelphas who praskapte e skandalizetai e asthene. And then let's turn to the final two verses and conclude this part of our study. I do feel like I'm rushing, but I hope you don't think that I'm rushing. I personally feel like I'm rushing, but I hope that it's not too fast that you can't follow along. The final two verses, the faith that you have, Paul says in verse 22, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Is Paul telling us not to witness to everyone? No, but um, it could be misunderstood that way. Su, the, the, the Greek says, Su piston e eke skata siautan, eke 
Enopion to Theu, Makarias ha me crinon hautan in ho dakimadze. And then the proof that he's not talking about generic faith in Jesus when he says, keep that faith to yourself, is the very next verse gives us the context. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, right? So the context is the the faith that you have about where the food originated, how much idolatry was involved uh, in the um, processing of the food, the slaughtering of food, things like that. Um, if you you know, don't go around blabbing about, uh, hey, guess what? That was sold. In the, that was that was sold in the in, uh, in idolatrous supermarkets. You better not eat that. You're going around shouting this uh, from rooftops, just openly um, confusing everyone. Um, you know that's probably not the best thing to do either. Paul says, uh, uh, if that's the faith you have, if it's possible, if no one sees you, right, and if it's not going to cause any problems, then just keep that faith to yourself. Go to the market, buy what you need, knowing that it's approved by God, knowing it's on the kosher list, and then take it home and serve it up to your family. No problem. Keep that faith to yourself. You don't, don't have to go blabbing at the next church meeting that, hey, guess what? I got this cut of meat from the from the, from the the idol marketplace, and it was really delicious, and knowing that it's going to offend the Jewish members of the community, right? Right? Don't do that. Don't do that. Keep that faith to yourself. Um, because whoever has doubts is condemned if he does eat it. Right? You're not sure if you should be eating it or not, but you're going to go and buy it and serve it up to your family. You're not sure if it's going to be acceptable of God. You're condemning your own conscience because you're eating not from faith, but you're eating from doubt. And whatever does not proceed from faith is a sin, Paul tells us. And the final verse in the Greek says, Ha de diakrinamenos in phage kata kata ke kritai hati uk ek pistios pan de ha uk ek pistios hamartia esten and basically we're done that's it that'll finish up romans 14 feast and fast and food oh my next week i've got a new study planned for you um i'm not going to tell you what it is in advance uh, you'll just have to wait until next week. So tune in next week, and we'll see what we uh, what study we embark on. Uh, but that'll do it right uh, for this uh, episode of Fe- uh, Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh, my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And we won't take very long on this particular section. Um, since I went really, really long in the Romans 14, on, Romans 14 Unplugged study, I'll be really short in the, the Shema study. Um, make it a, the, probably the shortest Shema study I've ever done. Let's just scroll down into the notes and jump right into where we're at. We're in section three, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Who or what spirit is indwelling believers? And let me jump to this because it'll be easier to scroll down or back up. Basically, we're um, working our way through a set of passages that talks about the idea of the Spirit dwelling within us. And the question we're asking is, what Spirit is inside of us? The Bible gives us language that gives us three options. It's the, either the Spirit of God, it's either the Spirit of Messiah, or it's the Holy Spirit himself. And what's really beautiful about the Bible is that it just overlaps those three. And that's the challenge and the mystery and the beauty of God's Word, is that it allows us to seamlessly move through this discussion while at the same time not being in a place where we can say, well, it's only God's Spirit, and it's not the Spirit of Messiah. It's only the Spirit of Messiah, and it's not God's Spirit. Or it's only the Holy Spirit, and it's not one of the other two. It gives us the um, conclusion that we're dealing with a complex God who expresses himself as one being, one what, and yet three who's, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equal God, 
all one God and yet three persons, not three gods, not one God wearing three masks. Okay, so those are the errors that we want to avoid. So let's look at the um, verses that we've been um, highlighting. We just uh, finished Ephesians uh, 2, 17 through 22. Let's turn now to Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, notice the focus is on the Father, his glory, he, the Father, may grant you to be strengthened with who? The power through his spirit in your inner being. Whose spirit? Within context, it's still the Father's spirit. He says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of, and then we're back again to the Father, fullness of God. Now, um, germane to our point of spirit study is that Paul mentions the Father, and within the context of mentioning the Father, he says that it's the strengthening, the strengthening comes from the power through his spirit. So in typical Unitarian fashion, we would say that the spirit in verse 16 is the spirit of the Father from verse 14. That's the direct context. No question, really. So, verse 14, we're bowing our knees before the Father, and then in verse 16, it's His Spirit in our inner being. The question is asked, whose spirit is dwelling within us in verse in uh, Ephesians? this Ephesians passage? The answer, it's the Spirit of the Father. And in typical Unitarian thought, this would mean we're not talking about a third person of the Trinity known as the Holy Spirit. We're simply talking about the one and only being known as God who allows his spirit to come and dwell within us. That would be a Unitarian reading of the passage. However, however, given what we already know about the other passages we've already read earlier and the passages we're going to continue to read in this study, we also know that Paul, same writer, frequently uses terminology that lets us um, walk away with the idea that we're talking about a power, not just a power, but a, a person who comes to dwell with us and live with us, who is separate from the Father, distinct from Yeshua. He, he exists uh, um, unique uh, outside of the Father, and yet he's one with the Father. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. Or we're talking about the Spirit of Messiah, which we're going to read here shortly. So this is the challenge that I keep presenting before us. Just let the Bible speak for itself. The Unitarian perspective, in my opinion, does not let the Bible speak for itself. It cuts off those passages that disagrees with the view that describes second and third person of the Trinity. The Unitarian perspective um, limits God in a way that the Bible does not limit God. That's the point I'm trying to make. The Unitarian perspective does recognize the other three members um, that are relative to our relationship to God. So Unitarians who are Christians do recognize Jesus the Messiah, and they also recognize the Spirit, but they don't describe the Spirit as a separate third person. They simply describe the Spirit as either A, a power emanating from God or or um, 
being sent from God, or B, God's very own spirit. So sometimes you get a little bit of the kind of the Jehovah's Witnesses Mormon version of the spirit, where it's just like an impersonal force of God, you know. And then sometimes Unitarians describe the spirit as more than just the impersonal force. It's more the the um, living dynamic. Um, essence of God, uh, so it's not an impersonal force like electricity or something like that. But either way, you're still limiting what you're putting. You're placing limitations on God that the Bible doesn't place limitations on. And so, I think the um, Unitarian perspective on God is too restrictive. That's the point I'm trying to make. So, and passages like this, I think, are proof of that. So, you would not see this if you looked at only one passage. You would only see this if you looked at the Bible as a whole and allow it to speak for itself, lay it all out on the table and just say, hey, I can't quite put piece A together with piece B, but since they're both um, authoritative scripture, then both of them must be true, right? Spirit of God in passage A, Spirit of Messiah in passage B, Holy Spirit in passage C. I can't put all of them together comfortably in my mind. It's a little bit of a challenge, a little bit of stretching going on there, a little bit of mystery that I can't put my finger on. But since it's all authoritative scripture, then I simply affirm it. And that's the perspective that Trinitarians take for the most part. Let's look at the next passage, 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. This is a really unique passage. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, follow the pattern of the sound words that I have, that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then look at verse 14. Here's the strange verse. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now you say, RL, that doesn't sound strange. What's so strange about describing the Holy Spirit who dwells within us? That's the way most Trinitarians speak. Holy Spirit dwells within us. Ah, but wait a minute. That's just the ESV version. Take the time sometime this week and pull up a parallel version of this verse and read it in, in a dozen other versions, and you'll find that sometimes they capitalize the Spirit, S, capital S, and sometimes they don't. They put lowercase s. And sometimes they don't even put the word holy, and some translations, even in brackets, put human spirit. Why? It's because the Greek is actually ambiguous. Is Paul talking about the Holy Spirit? Is he talking about the human spirit? Is he talking about some kind of overlap? Is he talking about a generic spirit that God puts within us? You know, the, the, the spirit that allows us to be living beings? What what spirit is he talking about? Um, and uh, I'm sorry, it's not this passage. It is, uh, it's the next passage below. So take everything I was just talking about and apply it to the book, to the uh, passage in James. But the, the, the passage here in Timothy is quite plain. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So I apologize, I was jumping the gun there. But the point I'm trying to bring up in this passage is that earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the Father, and then he talks about the, his Spirit that dwells in us. But then when he's writing of Timothy, he talks about the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so this is another example of where um, we have language of the Spirit of the Father in us, and then another passage where it's language of the Holy Spirit in us. And again, it just affirms, it just, it just confirms to us that God in his complexity is Father, Son, Spirit. He is all three, and yet he is one. He's one, yet he's three. He's three, yet he's one. He's not three gods, and he's not one god simply wearing three different disguises, right? He's a little more complex than that. Hard for us to put our finger on sometimes, but this is the God we serve. James 4, 5, ESV. Or do you suppose it is 
to know purpose that the scripture says, quote, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made dwell in us. Okay, this is the verse that I was uh, describing out. It's slightly ambiguous. The Greek is a little odd. It can go one or two or three different ways. Um, different translations will have the word spirit there in capital S. Some put it in lower S because they're referring to our own spirit, right? Uh, the human spirit that allows us to actually enjoy life, right? God breathed life into Adam and he became a living spirit. Um, so, uh, and to make matters even more confusing, James says, uh, the scripture says, and yet translators have searched in vain as to what passage he's talking about. What's he, where's he quoting? There's no reference. We don't even know where from the Tanakh or if it's another um, one of Paul's writings that he's quoting. He could be quoting from Paul. So we don't know. Um, and that's what makes this verse a little challenging. But the uh, germane to our study in the, on the spirit here is that he talks about the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. And I think it's interesting that this is taken in isolation. This verse could be um, talking about a Trinitarian model where it's the Holy Spirit in us, could be God's Spirit in us, could be um, the Spirit of Messiah that's in us, or it could be a completely non-Trinitarian or Unitarian argument. He's just talking about um, the human spirit that allows us to live as humans, right? Really interesting verse. You back, go back and study it on your own and, and uh, the gather from it what you can. 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11, ESV. I think we'll probably finish all of these verses tonight. Uh, one, two, three. Yeah, three more verses. Let's finish all of these tonight and then finish out the section and we'll be poised to turn to the next section next week. Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, watch this, searched and inquired carefully, verse 11, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, this is really neat. i got to read that again very carefully so that you catch it. Just verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them. Now, the spirit of Christ, is it, the, is it Christ's spirit? in them, speaking of the prophets, or is it the Holy Spirit in them? Understand my question? Is it second person spirit or is it third person spirit? Well, could be either one. But notice in the second clause, it says this spirit predicted the sufferings of Christ and the suffering glories, right? Because it says he predicted the sufferings of Christ. So in the second clause, it could also be second person of the Trinity, right? Christ's own spirit predicting his own sufferings. But it's more likely that it's third person speaking about the second person because it says when he predicted sufferings of Christ. So it's like the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, pre indicating, uh, predicting when the second person, meaning Christ himself, would have to go through the suffering and the subsequent, subsequent glory. Either way, this passage cannot be neatly explained away by a Unitarian model, right? Inquiring what person time the Spirit of Christ. Well, I suppose they're talking about God's Spirit, right? When the Spirit of Christ, why would it be the Spirit of Christ if it's simply God's own Spirit? Why is God's very Spirit, or his own impersonal force like the Jehovah's Witnesses want to describe it, why is God's Spirit described as the Spirit of Christ? 
And, and why would he indicate to predicting and predict the sufferings of Christ? So it seems to destroy the force of Peter's argument if we simply just remove all of the possibilities that we're talking about. A complex God who expresses himself in Father and Father's Spirit, in, as Son and Spirit of the Son, and then Holy Spirit who is himself the Spirit. We lose all of that if we simply just say that it's one God um, who is not uh, capable of existing as three persons simultaneously. Um, we destroy the mystery and the majesty of what, of what Peter's trying to describe to us. I think it's also um, important um, that we don't gloss over the fact that Peter describes this as the prophets of the Tanakh who prophesied about the grace, and they talk about the Spirit of Christ in them, right? Last time I checked, Jesus didn't come onto the scene until the first century, and yet the prophets who predated Christ nevertheless had the Spirit of Christ in them? Why would it be called the Spirit of Christ if this Spirit predates Christ? Understand my challenging question there? It's more natural for Peter if he's certainly focusing his attention and not wanting us to understand that is the Spirit of God in this knock to use that language. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of God in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. That seems more natural way to describe the prophecies of the Tanakh, the Spirit of God in the prophets. That's the natural way to understand the Bible, the Tanakh, when you're reading through it. And we talk, we read passages where the Holy Spirit is moving the prophets to write about the coming Messiah. That's the natural way to read the Bible. But no, Peter doesn't say the Spirit of God. He says the Spirit of Christ in them. Who's the them? The prophets of old. So you understand it's better to take the Trinitarian model here uh, when reading this particular passage because Peter uses the Spirit of Christ instead of saying the Spirit of God. It challenges the Unitarian model when we say Spirit of Christ. And um, there's a little bit of ambiguity, a little bit of um, equivocation there. Um, Spirit of Christ, like we said, it could be the Spirit that God sends to dwell in Christ. It could be Christ's own very Spirit. Um, and so that's why we bring these passages into our discussion. Let's keep going. First John, last two passages are out, both out of First John, and they both basically say the same thing. So I can read both passages, and then we'll just uh, entertain the discussion. The first one is First John three twenty four, um, where he writes, "Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him." I like that little play on words and the play on the relationship. We're in God, and God is in us. Right? I mean, that's really really neat. Um, and then he continues by saying, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Again, the natural way to understand this passage would be that it's God's Spirit that dwells in us because the focus is all on God. There's nothing mentioned here about Messiah and nothing really over, um, in your face talking about the Holy Spirit as a third person of the Trinity. Um, we know that God abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. However, however, we could very easily and comfortably translate this passage as or understand it as the Holy Spirit that God has given us. Either way, we know this is a, um, a passage that can only take place if we have our faith anchored in Messiah. It's not a generic um, description of God placing his Spirit in us and our abiding in God and God abiding in us merely because 
because we have faith in God or a generic faith in God, like, say, national Israel would describe their own relationship to God. John is describing a, uh, a messianic experience, uh, uh, a faith that's anchored in Messiah. And um, he goes on to continue in the next uh, chapter of this same book in 1 John 4, 12 and 13. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Still again, the focus is first person of the Trinity, the Father. And then verse 13, he repeats the same thing that he said earlier. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Again, a passage that every um, card-carrying Unitarian would 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 love to claim this passage as their own and say, see, here's proof positive that we're talking about a single God and we don't need to have any discussions on the issues of Trinity. Um, this verse is, is, is very comfortably, um, uh, what should we say, uh, 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 found within uh, Unitarian discussions because uh, it doesn't t say anything about Jesus coming to dwell in us per se, and it doesn't have any, any language that describes the Holy Spirit. But th the point I'm trying to uh, emphasize that we good Trinitarians always know that because we're dealing with one God and not three, and not simply with one God who's swapping out identities uh, like like disguises, we know that to describe the abiding in God and the uh, the description of His Spirit is equally to affirm that it's Messiah in us, the Holy Spirit in us at the same time. So, in conclusion, here's what I say in my study here. These are my own notes. So, after studying the above passages carefully, are we to imagine that Christians have three different spirits living within us? nonsense, right? We Trinitarians affirm God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And after having re reading all these passages where nomenclature, where verbiage sometimes says the Spirit of God, sometimes it says the Spirit of Christ, and sometimes it says the Holy Spirit. How many spirits are living in us? Is it three? Nonsense. Actually, I say, continuing along this illogical line of reasoning, we would have to account for four spirits, three divine spirits, right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and one non-divine spirit, right, adding our own very own, sorry, let me scroll up there, adding our very own human spirit in the numbering. You understand what I mean there? So, let's use Ariel as an example. I'm a Christian, so I'm a Trinitarian. How many spirits are inside me? Well, using this illogical line of reasoning, right, as if I were someone who didn't quite understand what's going on, I would have to say, okay, I've got God's spirit inside me, that's one. I've got the spirit of Jesus inside me, that's two. And I've got the Holy Spirit inside me, that's three. And wait a minute, Ariel's still in there as well, that's four. Okay, so this is, of course, nonsense. It's absurd. It's not the way the Bible describes our experience with God, and it's not the way that any Trinitarian that I know of describes their own experience in the spirit. Rather, from a divine perspective, there's one spirit. One spirit, and yet there's three persons. And yet there's one spirit. It's almost as if the experience of describing the indwelling of the spirit encapsulates the being known as God, yet at the same time recognizes that there are three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all at the same time. I know it's challenging, and it's no wonder that Unitarians and um, skeptics uh, disagree with our perspective as Trinitarians. I continue in my own uh, uh, commentary here. 
I say it this way. I worship God who dwells inside of me. Absolutely. I worship God. But at the same time, I worship Jesus who dwells inside of me. I have no problem confessing the mystery that Jesus dwells inside of me. Don't understand how that's possible. I mean, he's a man. How does he dwell inside of me? By his spirit, right? By his spirit. And yet, as a genuine son of Abraham, at the spiritual level and at the physical level as well, at the same time, I equally affirm, this would be true of Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter, I equally affirm the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, not just Spirit of God, not just Spirit of Messiah, but the Holy Spirit is in me, and that he is a separate and distinct person of God who possesses all of the same attributes as God the Father, without deficiency, entitling this Holy Spirit to be worshipped as the one true God also. And that's really the perspective that I walk away with when I read through the Bible without cherry-picking the passages, without elevating one passage above others and, and moving others off to the side marginally, by allowing the Bible to speak for itself in mystery, in majesty, to challenge me, to stretch me, to grow me. I can't always put my finger on how every single passage fits together. I don't always understand why wording is laid out the way it is. I don't understand why Paul writes in one passage the, the Spirit of God, and then another passage the Spirit of Messiah, and then in a third passage the Spirit of the Holy One, the Holy Spirit. Why not just use one term or something like that and make it a little easier for me to follow along. But he was moved and born along by the Holy Spirit himself. And therefore, the words are not arbitrary and they're not entirely Paul's uh, fabrication. He didn't make them up. He didn't. It wasn't just for, like, for instance, when I'm writing my commentaries, I stylistically purposely choose um, uh, synonym words especially if I mentioned something earlier in the passage, and for stylistic reasons, I um, kind of either in complementary or poetic fashion, I use other terminology, even if, I'm use, even if I'm speaking tautologically, meaning saying the same thing, just in a different way of, of saying it. That's what I mean by tautology. I purposely do that as an author because I want my um, uh, writing to look a certain way, and I don't want to sound like I'm just too repetitive all the time. So it's more for stylistic fashion, right? But it has, doesn't have anything to do with altering the content. But for Paul, I don't think he always did that. I'm sure he did that uh, sometimes as an author, but he was born along by the Holy Spirit in a way that I'm not. His words are holy scripture, mine are not, right? Mine are just mere words from a man, right? You can either believe what I write or you can toss it out. It really doesn't affect anything, really. But for Paul, his words are scripture. So you've got to deal with them. They are words that have been inspired and penned and authored by the Holy Spirit himself, not just by Paul. Paul's thoughts are there, yes, but the Holy Spirit chose the words and the Holy Spirit um, secured the words for us to to take and to um, uh, to make authoritative, to to um, allow to speak to our our inner man. And so, when we read through the Bible and we read all these different words about the Holy Spirit, we had better just let the Bible say what it wants to say, even if it disagrees with our denomination or our theology or our logical perception of what's going on. 
Okay, just let the Bible speak for itself. And that'll do it for this section on um, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Next week, we're ready to turn to section four, who or what is the Holy Spirit, the filioque debate, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Latter-day Saints, and social Trinitarian thoughts. Uh, we'll turn to that next week, okay? And let's go ahead and wind down the study and draw it to a close. I'm not going to play any video. I'm not going to read any liturgy since I've gone a little bit later in the study. For those of you with me in the live class, um, I'll simply give a general dismissal and we'll close in prayer. And if you'd like to stick around and do some uh, after chatting, uh, I'm open to that. But if not, then... Um, We'll just dismiss and let everyone go for the week, okay? Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I bless your holy word. I'm thankful for its, its challenges, its uh, inspiration, its spiritual nutrition, for the way it speaks to me personally, the way it convicts me and brings me back into a place where I can uh, walk the life of holiness. Um, I don't always like what it has to say because it, it um, shines light into darkness in places where I sometimes don't want light shining there. But it's up to me, it's it's for my good to um, expose that error and to, to, to um, shine light on those places inside of me that are dark. It's for my benefit. So thank you, Lord, for preserving your words and for sending your spirit so that he can explain the words to me, so that he can activate them on my heart so that you can enliven my spirit and, and, and uh, empower me to walk them out. I can't always understand them with my mind, but I know that I have this fellowship in the spirit that's that's uh, indescribable. And so I, I, I relish in that fellowship. And it's that fellowship that allows me to connect not just to you, Lord, but to other people around the world in this great adventure of studying the Bible together. So thank you for this experience. Thank you for the medium of the internet and YouTube and iTunes and, and podcasting and, and websites and all of the, the, the mechanisms and the tools that allows um, people around the world to connect together in this particular fashion. So bless you, Lord. Continue to go with us throughout the week. Keep us safe. Keep us whole. Keep us healthy. Keep us strong. Focused on you. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Oh,